Welcome back to part two of Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. In part two, Professor Maha Bailey of American University Cairo is going to continue telling us about liberatory education and online teaching and learning. She's going to start with a story and from there tell us about teaching through the trauma during the pandemic and how to use online theater of the oppressed and other engaged and embodied techniques in the classroom to build community and create spaces for social justice. Can I share with you guys a story? It just happened today. Yes. You don't, I, don't know if, I don't know if we can publish it in the podcast, but I need to share it because it just happened to me today and it was very difficult to be in this situation. Um, I was in a professional development event um, and someone was suggesting, someone from South Africa. I was, I was very happy because this event is US and South Africa led, so it's nice. I like South Africa a lot. Um, uh, he was suggesting that there's this song that's popular on TikTok and it was used during Corona to put people's well-being that they would dance to it and then people would post it on TikTok or something. And anyway, it was a nice thing. But then as soon as the dance, and then he showed it to us and he said, maybe all of us in the cohort could um, record our own and participate. And I thought it was fun, nice. But then the song is called Jerusalem. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. So it's a South African song called Jerusalem. Um, I, I think it's a South African song. It's from some, it has, it's in some African con- language that I don't know. And it's a called Jerusalem and they're dancing to it. It's, it's a dance that's similar to Egyptian belly dancing. And I was like, Jerusalem, like the song is about Jerusalem and you're dancing to it. And Jerusalem is such, and they're talking about, the, the lyrics are nice when I read the translation, but you don't belly dance to something about Jerusalem that uh, you guys understand religion obviously very well. And Jerusalem is such a holy city. Oh, Jerusalem and belly dance and my head was exploding. Wow. What a story. Can <laughs> you believe it? Oh my God. <laughs> Yeah. How did it, so how did it end? So, so, okay, so what happened is the two facilitators, one of whom is African-American and one of whom is LGBTQ, who are good friends of mine, who are different from this person who brought up uh, the song, they caught, off, caught on what I was saying in the chat and they brought it forward and they said, this is what happens in intercultural situations. They asked him first to say, to comment on the political nature. And he's like, oh, no, this is not a political thing. This is about peace and we're singing about Jerusalem because it's a city of peace. And I said, yeah, it's a holy city, but it's not, it's a city of conflict. That's what it mm-hmm. conjures up for me. I, I don't know what that's about. And and um, so they brought, you know, they, they talked about, you know, the sensitivity of when you use something like this originally intended for community and how our intentions, uh, you know, don't always pan out and how do you react as a teacher? So they, they made it into a teachable moment, which I thought was very good. Um, I had commented to them about something else that had happened in another session that was really offensive again um, that nobody had responded to so they I think they were very aware that oh they have to be careful about this it's an an intercultural space these kinds of things will happen Um, and he did apologize Um, I think other people were one one of the things that worries me when I talk strongly about things like that and I didn't speak with my voice so this was only in text chat is that you you, th- I feel like I had the right to say this and this was important to speak out. 
um, and not to leave just because I'm not feeling well, but to speak out because other people may be thinking that and not saying it out loud. But on the other hand, I also understand and I worry about how when I speak up, have I made it an unsafe space for some other people who don't understand at all where I'm coming from. So in a, in a breakout room for that same uh, event, someone was describing something and I said, that sounds like a very masculinist way of doing management or leadership. And I felt like she got offended by that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I don't know, like, I, I don't really know how this fits into anything, but I, I needed to share this story. Yeah. No, I, I, I have so many thoughts about so much of what, what you just said. I'll just sort of like list them and maybe, maybe we can collectively figure out how they, they come together. So like a little while ago, you were talking about the way that you sort of handle the injunction to put quote unquote diverse texts on a syllabus. And I was thinking about like, what is that word diversity? What, is it, what does it come to mark? in um, sort of educational parlance and discourse. And sometimes I think that the word diversity is a way of trying to mark difference in particular clearly racialized difference mm -hmm. while stripping it of any sort of material weight and depoliticizing it. So thinking about like, okay, like everybody has equal difference around the table and each person is, each person has an equal chance of making someone else uncomfortable as if the space is neutral, um, I think can create the kinds of scenarios that you're describing here where pointing out a power dynamic becomes um, sort of or is experienced as or narrated as equivalent to creating an unsafe space when perhaps the space was um, when the, the space had a power dynamic to begin with. And so as we like notice, you know, you talked so like in, in such a clear way about noticing who's privileged in choices of texts and readings to think about like how, like what, what, situa what political situation, what kind of like epistemic situation are we in when to point out violence is to become um, the, the presumed cause of some other kind of violence. I think Sarah, mm. Sarah Ahmed writes really, really, um, gorgeously is that word about this um about how i love her and, work right like how feminists, yes, yes, feminists who point out the problem become the problem feminist killjoys right yeah. i actually said yeah. yeah i actually think i said I, i'm sorry to be a party pooper <laughs> when i said this because i it was just this joyful thing that we were going through but you're right you're right mm -hmm. um oh no am i getting disconnected again no you know, it makes me think, Maha, about some of your okay. other work about the, the the intersections of anger and kindness in critical pedagogy, and like, what are the what are the uses of anger, and how do we keep how can anger be a form of kindness, and how can kindness express an anger at the unkindness of the institutions that we often inhabit? Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that one up. Um, and this is one of the things I remember really well when I was doing my PhD, I was interviewing an African-American professor and one of the things he said, and I think African-Americans maybe have taught me this better than anyone else. And he said, anger is good. You just need to know how to harness it for your cause, right? So, so it's good 
it's it's not good to not feel anger at injustice. You need to feel something like injustice should move you to act. Yeah. Uh, and you should feel angry. And it's just about how are you going to harness that anger to a good cause. And sometimes you're able to. Uh, but the other aspect is, of course, the privilege to control your anger mm-hmm. and harness it is also a thing because um, there are situations where the, the injustice is just so powerful and so triggering for you that this idea of, oh, what's the long-term consequence of what I'm going to do here is not on your mind. And it's, and that, that, that in itself is a privilege, not just to have the maturity to do that, but to just have, to be able to distance yourself emotionally enough to do that is not always your privilege to do that. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I can ask questions all day. I think I, I was, I, as we talk about sort of social change, movement building, um, the ways to balance sort of epistemic justice with a politics of redistribution, to use Nancy Fraser's term. Um, I'm curious, Maha, about what sort of what you're thinking and what you might say to our listeners about what educational justice looks like maybe maybe concrete stories about places you've seen it or movements you've seen um, working towards this in our current context of a transnational pandemic and um, the move to online learning as so many teachers and students and people who support learning in all kinds of ways, visible and not visible, are experiencing trauma right now that's been unevenly distributed. Um, how have you been thinking about, about justice during this present moment? Oh my God, isn't that like the, the biggest question ever? Like it's got everything in it. I think you've mentioned everything and I, um, wow, this is, this is so much and it's, it's just so nuanced and so um, everyday. I think, I think one of the one of the biggest things I'm learning through this pandemic is to never assume that you've figured out all the ways in which someone could be disadvantaged uh, in this space. There are groups that are so clearly disadvantaged, uh, and for like lack of access to good healthcare or because they are directly like losing their jobs. But there are also so many invisible ways that someone could be suffering and that you're not aware of. There are also, I think one of the biggest things that I think is really important to me, um, and I, I don't know if this is the work of Nancy Fraser or the way I've interpreted the work of Nancy Fraser, but it's always that the, the, the acts of reform to try to counter injustice are nuanced and the same action can privilege one group and disadvantage another group at the same time. So for example, one of the biggest ones that's very obvious is focusing on the economic aspect of, oh, doing asynchronous learning so that people who don't have access to a fast enough internet connection to have synchronous learning are able to access the exact same learning experience as those who do. And that's very obvious and it's very clear and it's very important and we should definitely keep that in mind. But on the other hand, we are forgetting something that there are few people for whom asynchronous learning is a higher cognitive load because it's more reading when they need to be able to express themselves orally, which is like in my culture, a really big thing. Um, And that also uh, 
for some people, especially in this pandemic of a lot of social distancing, physical distancing, they need some kind of social emotional connection. And the and I think that's one of the reasons that the synchronous has been working so well. And the other one is obviously it's just less effort for the teacher, I think, to prepare for a synchronous session. It feels to them like it's um, like it's a class. It's not. But mm -hmm. but it's also important to think that these teachers are all of a sudden having to do something that they didn't prepare for. And they also had to like take their kids at home and, and take have kids learning at home. And, and so there, there's a lot of complex factors to take into, my, into consideration with all of this. And this is not even getting into the trauma and how people who already have anxiety and depression yeah. and what this trauma is doing to them. Um, and, and then people who live completely alone and how that is, has been impacting them. And then people who have to be responsible for older, elderly uh, family members and children and that combination and what that's doing. And then people have an unsafe home environment where they have domestic violence and now they're stuck at home with that person and they have nowhere else to go. Uh, and then people who have uh, learning difficulties and what that means for them to learn online with a teacher who doesn't even know how to teach online, let alone how to teach online a learner who has ADHD or a learner who has a hearing difficulty or all, all these complexities. I think the trying to think about and get our head around this mm -hmm. is really difficult. And I think the most important thing is that attitude, just the, the attitude change of, first of all, recognizing that you may not know. And then how do you, as a teacher and as an institution, set the conditions that make it possible to respond to everything? Because who, who comes to the table to make the decisions about what the institution will do? And the, do the people who come to the table represent all the different groups? And that's almost impossible, but you try as much as you can, because a lot of the decisions that have been taken in institutions are coming top down. How do you make sure everyone who has a stake in this has a, has a say in this and has an equal space on that table to, to decide how the learning experience is going to be. How, how many institutions took the opinion of students on how many topics? Like our, our institution, um, the students came up with uh, the idea of not having grades uh, for the spring semester, for example, and they fought for it and they got it. And, but every other decision nobody took the opinion of students about, for example, proctoring and surveillance, that, that kind of surveillance technology. And students then had to respond because the institution took the decision to go ahead with it, despite a lot of us telling them this was not a just decision to make. The, 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 there, there, there's also an, a dimension here that um, I think gets forgotten, which is the, the dimension of how technologies are not neutral. And every choice that an institution makes to use a particular technology is bringing with it the, the political biases that that technology brings. And Ruha Benjamin talks really well about this, as do a lot of others like Sophia Noble, um, and the ways in which uh, bias is embedded in algorithms and like algorithms are things like surveillance technologies, like Turnitin.com. These are the things that people are starting to use more and more with this belief that when they control students, they will have better academic integrity and completely losing sight of that academic integrity is something people should have that is intrinsic that they do when they're not being watched <laughs> or checked over, right? Um, but so I'm going back to what I'm saying. I think there, there needs to be both a parity of participation and decision-making as much as possible, because no matter what you imagine on your own, it's not the same as when you're involving um, 
every type of stakeholder who needs to, to be involved in order to make decisions about anything. And then the other one is just that sort of the attitude where you center justice and, and kindness is not a simple thing, but kindness without a view about justice may not produce uh, the outcome that you want. Um, there's, there's always this tricky thing about it's easy to be kind to certain people and it's harder to be kind to others. Like empathy is not even equally doled out because there are people with whom you easily empathize because you have been through the same situation. And it's much harder to empathize with someone who's unfamiliar to you or whose situation doesn't make sense to you, don't understand their history. Um, and, 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 and that's, that's not an easy thing to, to just keep in mind. Um, the other one is the importance of structural change and not responding to one person at a time. That is a huge thing. So it's important for every teacher to be able to respond to one student at a time in the sense that when something comes up that you hadn't anticipated, you need to respond to it and, and make accommodations or whatever. But how do you design something structurally from the beginning so that it doesn't disadvantage one group over another? How do you design uh, learning experiences that are accessible to a variety of different students? It goes back to, to creating a space that nurtures agency uh, as well for yeah. students. And then an, 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 a, a, an institution that gives the teachers enough agency to do that, but not to harm students while doing that. So, because institutions, for example, that force us to give grades. And and the, the, the idea that last spring it was okay to do pass-fail, but that this semester, oh, now it's gonna be fine because now we know how to teach online. No, now the trauma is more. <laughs> now everyone is even more tired. Now, yes, things might be a little bit better in some places, but they're not the same everywhere. Now there's much more uncertainty you know, it's just uncertainty, and we've been living with it for a much longer time. So, I, I don't know. It's a, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't think I'm actually answering any of your questions. I'm just thinking about all the things that could go wrong, really. Yeah. Uh, and and asking institutions to to just stop to stop and think about that and stay in that moment and think about what values they need to center, not what actions they need to take strategically yeah. and what are the values that that come first before you make decisions about things like that mm -hmm. well one of the things that you um, emphasize in your teaching is building community in the classroom and you've talked some about this so far but uh, you also use some theater of the oppressed and and i'm curious there uh, there is a minority group that does this in, in higher education outside of theater departments and, and even within theater departments. So I'm curious how you came uh, to, to theater of the oppressed and um, the benefits you see uh, when you use it in your classroom. Yeah, one of the things, um, so theater of the oppressed is, is obviously a variety of techniques. And the one that I first heard of was the, the one that you're not supposed to start with, which is the spectators forum theater thing where um, students put on a sort of a performance and then the spectators can intervene and enter and change the outcome. What I love most about this particular uh, form is how it nurtures agency because it reminds you that you are never, you don't ever have to be a passive person observing something. And so in the metaphor that it is, it sort of reminds you that in real life as well, you can take agency. And even the 
the digital narrative games that my students create are games where the player gets to choose what happens next. It's not a game that's controlled by the game designer. It's a game that has a lot of control in the students' hands. Uh, with Theater of the Oppressed, before I was teaching online, when I was teaching it face-to-face, -face, um, it was always about, for me, uh, for the, the act of actually having students write very short scenarios of something and acting them out was that I wanted them to sort of embody the kind of um, oppression or whatever it is that we're talking about the class, embody it in, in a situation they've either experienced themselves or they've seen happen in front of them. So first of all, the act of writing that scenario in itself is important because we're not just talking about something theoretically from a distance, but we're feeling it. And sometimes when you see students do it, uh, you can see the way they're acting and how they're feeling while they're acting because they're not actors. So the feelings that you're seeing are probably more real than if they were theater majors, if that makes sense. Um, and then the, the seeing the other students respond and wanting and going in and intervening. And to me, how I hope what it creates in students in the future is that they learn that they can do that in real life and in, in theater of life, you know, like just being in real life. I've never done um, theater of the oppressed in the sense that they actually go out and do something in real, real life outside the classroom, because I think that could be risky, especially in Egypt. Um, trying to do it online was a lot harder, to be honest. I haven't had as much success with um, having them go as deeply as I'd like to. I'm not sure if this is a, a function of it being online or a function of the pandemic in general, because there are certain things that I'm struggling with with my students um, these days uh, that they, they sometimes uh, take a bit longer to, for something to gel with them. So I'm going to keep trying uh, with other things and see how it goes, because um, I haven't yet had the best experience with Theater of the Oppressed online. And some of the things that uh, Tina and I have been learning about doing Theater of the Oppressed online requires their cameras to be on. And my students, I surveyed them in the beginning of the semester about why they don't like their cameras to be on. I didn't, I just assumed they don't like them to be on because I know that's the case in my institution. Um, and half of them have said it's for internet connection issues. So that's not going to get better with time. But another few are just they're less comfortable having it on or or they're not camera ready. So they're not camera ready is solvable, but the not feeling comfortable and the internet connection are harder. Um, so that's just, um, that's just another thing that I think to build up to very good theater of the oppressed, there are some techniques that work a lot better with the cameras on. And so you need to think about workarounds for how to make that work and getting them to see each other's expressions so that they can um, get to the, the feelings part might be really important as well. So. Yeah. Still not, still not sure how that's going to work for my particular class this semester. Yeah, um, I, we do have a professor in my institution who knows theater of the oppressed quite well. What were you going to say? Oh, I'm having a similar situations with uh, about half or more cameras off for various reasons. Some privacy issues. They're in a house full of siblings and older adults or yeah. they're in their car being taken to work or I mean there's there's just mm -hmm. of issues mostly the Wi-Fi issue um, and here in the states um, especially in Atlanta Georgia uh, and not just in Atlanta but um, there there are issues there there are race and class based issues around Wi-Fi connectivity 
of which part of town you live in. Mm -hmm. uh, and professors are facing right, right. areas. So. Right, yeah. I mean, Chris Gilliard calls it digital redlining, right? It's like mm -hmm. the government decided these parts yeah. have better infrastructure than others. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I found some of the um, some of the games um, that that you can play, you know, are adaptable, but it, I don't have a good repertoire mm -hmm. of those like I do in a face to face class. So there's lots to learn. Yeah. Right. And I mean, one of the things because you mentioned community building and you know that I've got a, I've co-developed a website that's just community building for online resources. Um, one of the things that we're doing almost with every single video is give adaptations because we don't know who's got what kind of situation um, is whenever you you have a technique in mind you need to keep in mind yeah what if my students can't do this what if they can't do that uh, you know what if they can't turn on the mic or they can't turn on the camera what if I need to be asynchronous for whatever reason that day is there another way of doing the same thing that would work um, asynchronously and some things work like that one of the things that has been working really well for me in my classes and in my workshops uh, are a set of techniques called liberating structures. Have you guys heard of them? Yes. So the liberating structures, yeah. So just for the audience, in case they don't know what those are, these are like kind of microstructures, ways of facilitating conversations that allow you to, in a large group, to break people up into smaller groups and have them have a conversation without a facilitator and have it be effective and productive and to a great extent equitable where everyone's voice gets heard. Mm -hmm. And they work really well online uh, with breakout rooms and using like Google Docs for note taking and coming back to the main room. And those have been working really well with my students. I think partly because they're more structured than their undergraduates, so it helps them. And sometimes I do a sort of a fishbowl type of experience in the main room so that they see how it works before they have to go and do it on their own. Um, and, and they tend to work really well quite effectively. One of the issues with them though is some of them require really fast thinking and again with the pandemic and maybe some people just needing more time to process things, I think sometimes they, they don't work as well. And I think there's also sometimes they make assumptions about equal time being what produces equitable conversation. But of course, you know, if you're a non-native speaker, you may need more time to make this, to express the same thing. Some people are more reflective, so they just need more time to think about the thing. So I've been in conversation with a few people, including Teresa Ronquillo, who does theater of the oppressed, trying to think about how do we decolonize the liberating structures? How do we learn from theater of the oppressed? And the liberating structures are quite effective and quite good, but what can we do to make them safer spaces and also make them um, more accessible to a, to different people? And how do you adapt them um, to, to make sure that they, that, to try to just make them better in that, in that space? Because they do work really well online. Yeah. And it's about trying to figure out these little things that you can tweak so that we can make that will make a big difference. Yeah. Well, we're getting near the end of our time, unfortunately. So Lucia, do you have any final question or Maha, do you have anything that you really want to make sure gets heard today? I feel bad because I feel like I wasn't really well focused today. I'm sorry, I've had a crazy day. If this um, is your if this is your unfocused, you're doing fine, Maha. <laughs> it's only midnight where you are. <laughs> yeah, it's half past midnight. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I'm sorry. Thank you. Thank we you. we usually end I by asking. I kind of feel like when I read the question. Yeah. Oh no, no you yeah. go ahead. Go ahead, Maha. Oh. Sorry. Did did you did you lose my audio? It, no, it said I think I just... my my Bluetooth headset called. No, okay. you're you're here. What were you gonna say? I forgot. You were gonna say you usually end by. Usually we go around and um, we usually go around and tell each other what we're reading, watching, listening to, or otherwise engaging um, that we are excited about, whether it's related to um, pedagogy or usually often it's not. It's just you know what what we're enjoying in the world. Okay. Tina, do you so want to go first? That's a lot of things for me. Yeah, um, I really enjoyed the new Charlie Kaufman film. Um, I'm thinking about ending it. It mm -hmm. I can't tell you really what it's about entirely. <laughs> it's about many things and I don't know how it ends. However, uh, it makes you think and it's, it's a very kind of postmodern experience <laughs> or a deconstructive experience, I guess. And I'm also reading a book by... Um, Larry Ward, um, America's Racial Karma. Mm. And it's a small book. It's a, a Buddhist um, treatise on uh, race. And um, I don't know, it, it, it provides a, a sort of, it's an invitation to heal as a subtitle. Uh, and in the kind of crazy political times we're in and the pandemic mm. and et cetera, kind of apocalyptic spaces we're in uh it it's it was kind of a, a respite maha what have you been listening to reading consuming so just the other day um i heard about someone called Baronda montgomery um in in a in the context of leadership and and management and she's actually she's she's a plant biologist i think but who talks about mentoring in these really beautiful ways. Um, she's an African-American woman. And I, I was in this space of thinking, why are so many of the people who talk about leadership? Men I don't usually read and talk about leadership and management and stuff because it's not my area of interest. But I'm in, in this professional development event where people are talking about that. And I was hungering for it really makes a difference when a black woman talks about these things. <laughs> It's completely different than what all the men are talking about, um, and the, and just her approach to to mentoring and the difference and you know differentiating between um, she uses plants as an example, which is really cool too. So she's got a STEM background, but she's talking about this a social science phenomenon, and and I'm just interested in exploring more. I started watching a, a video by her, but I want to check out her website and I want to read a little bit more about her because there's always you know, when you're, you keep reading about these things and these perspectives don't click with you. But this one, I think I want to I wanna pursue further and find out more about what she's saying about that. And one of the things she says that is a lot about what, like I say, is there's a difference between advising all students and mentoring each student as an individual. And that's generally how I see care and kindness is not about being caring for all your students. It's about caring for every student one by one as an individual rather than just a general, oh, I care about everyone, you know, or everybody's welcome. It's rather about, okay, what do you need? What can I do for you? 
what do you want from me that kind of thing yeah so lucia huh what have i been doing i you know i um i started listening to the newest npr serial series um which i'm really late to the game on it's called nice white parents and it's about um segregation in u.s schools and talks about how a lot of white middle upper middle class wealthy parents think that they really care about um, desegregation in schools and creating equal access but often go into primarily black and brown schools and totally take them over and do things that they think are promoting justice and access but in fact like really undermine communities and um and the very principles that they're saying that they support so i started listening to that and i'm finding it um really important um especially as i in new york there are a lot of i i there are definitely in my world a lot of white progressive parents who are um really invested in continuing to send their children to school in um, outbreak zones. And um, many of their teachers are underpaid and people of color and um, trying to think about like, okay, so what are the ethics of that? And how do we think about access and education and racial justice together um, in ways that are not recentering? white children and, and white parents while also doing community transformative transforming education for for everyone um so i've been listening to that yeah it's great gifted programs oh my gosh gifted well, as someone who went through one of those yes yeah yeah Maha, we so appreciate you awesome. being here today uh there's so much to talk about yeah i'm jealous of y'all's group well, you should come and join. <laughs> come and join us. Join you. I should come and join you. Yeah, come play. But do go take care and stay well. And get some sleep. Thank you Thank so you. much. Uh, Thank you. Well, being with lovely people like you is part of my self-care. Yeah. <laughs> Same. All right. Thank All right. you. Thank so much. Have a good rest of your day. Night. Good night. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. You've been listening to our conversation with Professor Maha Bailey of the American University in Cairo, Egypt. I want to thank my audio editor, Aliyah Harris, and my co-host, Lucia Holsether. Our opening theme music and interstitial music is by Lance Eric Hagen performed by Lance Eric Hagen with Aviva and the Flying Penguins. Our closing music is by Acrasis. It's called Plateau's Republic, and it's from unemployed apologist Max Bowen raps guitar and Mark McKee beats and trumpet. Thank you for listening. Mountains occasionally astounded, usually lonely and confounded. Reach the summit might as well.
well just plumb under call it a plateau and sing meat puppets got an illustrated book about birds a mop and a bucket illustrated book about birds a mop and a bucket illustrated book about birds a mop and a bucket illustrated book about birds there's a lot of there but don't be scared who needs actions when you've got 